Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. We hear the slow boat is built to catch all the eyes, but it's the one under the radar that's really turning heads. Those words could only come from the bar sinister, and if somebody's reading bar sinister far too excited, you know that this is Uncanny X's for podcast powerhouse. I'm Nico. I'm Dylan. I'm Kyle. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive the experience. And let's like, okay, so we're going to talk about X-Men number one and Marauders number one, and that's really exciting, right? But the thing we need to talk about is that we got five more bar sinister moments. In the Marauders, like that has to be the number two thing we talk about because the number one thing we have to talk about is Storm is a black woman. Yeah. Did they forget that? Did they forget Storm is a beautiful, amazing black goddess of a woman and she's supposed to have melanin anywhere in Marauders number one? Dylan, you are the Storm Gale on our show. How did you feel? Did it just, was it like a violation of your fandom? It really felt like it. I mean, like the cover art, she is black. And I feel like the first couple of panels where Kitty breaks her nose, they remembered that Storm was black, but then the rest of the issue, it was... Like, she was this white woman who tanned just a little bit. It was kind of awful. It certainly was an awkward situation. One of those uncomfortable 90s moments where they cast the Italian actress as a Native American and hope you don't notice the difference. I was deeply disappointed. And on that note, for a moment, talking about storm and color and such, we recently were announced a brand new X-Men book, Giant Size X-Men, for which I am over the moon excited. The first issue we'll see... Emma and Jean on a mission to save Storm, which again, I'm so excited. And the first issue will be written by Hickman with art by Nico favorite Russell Dowderman, who those of you who are fans of the title might recognize as the first artist to draw female Thor. And Matt Wilson, his standard colorist, who is a genius, will be on the title as well. I don't know why three men are coming together to write a story celebrating three women when there are so many female voices in comics right now that deserve a chance. I'm thrilled that Russell Dowderman, a queer artist, is getting this opportunity as he is an openly gay artist and he is killing it. Jonah, for your money, how does it feel that some of your favorite characters are going to be in this amazing book and it's still falling victim to the same thing you couldn't stand about Dazzler in 1982? Okay, I need to tell a quick story. When I've gone on interviews for intern positionships through my school, one of the organizations I'm a part of is SWE, which stands for Society of Women Engineers. You don't have to be a woman to join, but it is a organization within our school and it's a national recognized organization to help women who are already in STEM and engineering and help give them the opportunities that they're not always offered because of their gender. When I have that on my resume and people look at my resume, I've had so many different professionals look at me and say, why do you have SWE on here? You're you're not a woman. And my answer every single time is women aren't given the exact same opportunities as I am, as well as I'm there to support them. Girls are academically smarter than boys, and it's really unfortunate that workplaces aren't having the diversity of allowing more women to give them different ideas that a man could not. So that's how I feel about it. So young and so wise. 
I, yeah, that was all the words right out of my mouth. I really appreciate everything you just brought to the table with that. And it would not be an opening if I didn't segue a third time. <laughs> and Kyle, one of the things I love the most about covering this stuff with you is you have such a keen eye for details that I miss. And something you pointed out that almost transformed how I felt about Marauders was, I'll have you explain it. You pointed out an amazing moment that ties into some stuff we've been reading in Uncanny X right now. Okay, so near the end of the book, there's a panel when Kate is addressing a camera and she turns to it and introduces herself as the Marauders. And if you look at the panel and you reflect back, back, back to the 80s, it's mirrors the same image where she turns to the the reader and says professor x is a jerk and i love that that detail and there are a number of different instances in this issue where they're referencing those different moments in the 80s where she was building her own identity. I love that you said building her own identity. That's so key to this. They reference the points where Kitty Pride goes out of her way to say, I am a woman now. And they're going out of their way here to do it with an entirely different name. And I have so many theories on why that's so massively important to what we're going to discuss. Kyle, I love that you pointed that out. It was a great reminder that the title isn't using the word marauders with no regard for the past. It is very aware of the ex-history that came before it. Oh yeah, Aurora's reaction to it after Kate says it and her hesitance to accept it, it just brings this feeling that she's disappointed in, in Kate, but she's still willing to live with Kate's decisions. Because Kate's an adult woman, and that's an important step. One of the things that I felt reading X-Men and Marauders was that they were trying to give all of these X-Men opportunities to play new roles. And I feel that starts right away with X-Men number one. I know we touched on bits of X-Men number one in the last episode because, oh my god, I couldn't stop myself. But I feel like <laughs> X-Men number one primarily breaks down into three sections. We have Scott and Aurora kind of giving us a rundown of what's going on with the X-Men and we see these cute little peek-ins on all these different people like Magneto who's getting hero worshipped by a bunch of kids and I love it and you have Polaris being like I don't know if I'm okay with Alex yet I might still be crazy and that's <laughs> fine but then you've got all the neat stuff with the summer zizzizzizzizz on space zizzizzizzizzizz big space and that's been really exciting and then you have the third part where now humans can resurrect the dead and i feel like those three parts of this issue are so overwhelming because nothing happened in this whole issue like nothing <laughs> happened but so much happened and i would love to get your guys perspectives on that who has a perspective on one of those three parts first who wants to jump in and lead this brigade i want to talk about the polaris moment because it was really weird where i am at with polaris now is currently she's not really seen much she had you know the backup team issue with her alex iceman and banshee but we have haven't really seen her since. It was just weird. Reading Uncanny and reading now is interesting in that I'm filling in a lot of gaps and I have to try to piece together information. I only know Lorna as Alex's wife, but now they might not be together, which is it's weird to have to try to understand the separation. But I do want to talk about the moment of her and Scott together, because I don't know if that's ever been more touched upon by a writer, but I want like a story between brother-in-law and sister-in-law and how they're coping with that. That would be kind of cool. There's actually a really special issue for that. Somewhere in the 
300s. I want to say it's in the Alan Davis run. And I actually have a bit of a problem with it because it's one of those things where we see the internal dialogue of the character and then it's revealed that it wasn't really that person and they were faking those thoughts. Which was so strange, but there is a couple of spots here and there, primarily when Alex is either evil or dead. (laughs) (laughs) It's so sad, but true. I wanted to talk about Magneto and the... (laughs) What are you making this sound for? (laughs) The way you kittenish... Oh, I thought thought we were all laughing at how kittenishly you said Magneto. I want to talk about Magneto. (laughs) Like, you were so aroused. Well, I kind of (laughs) am. To... I don't blame you. Oh, no, I don't either. He's amazing. He's a sexy daddy Magneto now. But I think I've mentioned it before in previous episodes where I kind of have a soft heart for Magneto and his way of thinking. And with this issue and him getting his praise and like the little to slightly tie into what Jonah talking about Polaris and Cyclops and Polaris mentioning that it's like he's young again and Scott saying that this is all he's ever wanted. I kind of love this moment for him because he he finally feels like he's doing the right thing and I don't know to me I'm just happy that Magneto seems to be happy I have a very interesting interpretation of this moment and it's kind of complicated because part of what Magneto's story requires is a sense of redemption everything he's doing he's doing out of a need to make up for the actions of the past his or someone else's it doesn't matter he is all about connecting with the past and in this moment I almost see Magneto free of his past. I can almost imagine he's like Paul Bunyan with Babe the Big Blue Ox. And I know that sounds silly, but all of a sudden, he's not just this folk hero. He's not just doing his thing. There are kids who have heard his tales and are like, I have to imagine that's what like a folk hero, Annie Oakley felt like when people rushed up to her. Oh my God, you're that amazing gunslinger, Annie Oakley. I don't know why I'm only going for like 1800s Americana right now, but I feel like... I feel like this has to be one of those, wow, I I almost said, wow, you are Spider-Man. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you in that. I don't think it's just Magneto who's getting a redemption. It's, I think everyone is getting their clean slate that I think they deserve. You know, we kind of see it in Marauders with Pyro. Pyro is a villain. This is the original. I think everyone's getting their blank slate. We see it much more with Magneto than we do with someone like Pyro. But I think it was a really nice moment to show everyone, not just the inhabitants of Krakoa, but the readers that Magneto actually has changed. We're, we're going to forgive everything. We have to, everybody has to have a blank slate for this to work. Yeah, there's so many blank slates here, whether it's Vulcan or Magneto. Kyle, how do you feel about the number of villains that are suddenly like, no, we're buddies? I am very intrigued. I like giving villains the opportunity to take on a different role. When I was doing my original read-through, there were so many times when it just felt like villains were just there to be villains, but then we had other instances where we had like Magneto have opportunities to change, and seeing so many villains here getting that opportunity it just it's kind of heartwarming and i think it's because they're being given an opportunity to change this isn't one villain at a time on a story of redemption there's so few runs of x-men where a bunch of villains are looking to reform at once i'm looking at you mike carey But for the most part, it's (laughs) villain at a time the idea that every mutant has a chance to restart has really been a major propelling element of this story. And another huge propelling element of this story has been the idea of the ability to start life somewhere new. Krakoa isn't the only fresh start. The summer's is in big space on the moon. (laughs) 
So with the Summers is starting their lives over on the moon, I like, I mean, obviously we touched on some of the potential polyamory. We touched on elements of the new familial dynamic, like Cable settling in as a sun figure. I actually want to talk for a moment about a moment that I didn't care for. I don't like Scott giving Corsair a Krakoan flower. Because if the argument was that they couldn't bring a flower to the master mole, the mother master, the master mom, whatever it was called, then I don't like the idea of this flower randomly being out on the star jammer in space. Like, it seems to me like a potential for disaster. I agree. Yeah, it it's it's very naive of Scott to think that nothing bad will happen to his father or the star jammers out in space, and you don't know who's going to have access to that Krakowin plant once it's planted, or, you know, maybe Corsair won't even plant it. That would be interesting. I just realized for the first time that his name sounds like Coarse Hair. <laughs> I mean, have you seen his chest? Yeah. Oh. I want to hey, Coarse Hair, and like rub his chest. I'm just sitting here looking at Nico and eating. Well, part of it is because like I do things like I motion like I'm rubbing his chest. <laughs> Dylan, you should do Corsair. Oh, I should. Oh, I thought you meant Kyle. Yeah, I'm like the least her suit on this show. It's like Nikolox and the Three Bears. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm Baby Bear. (laughs) Oh, Oh, no. And Kyle, you're a total mama bear. You're such a like, I got to take care of everything. And Dylan, that default makes you Dilfy Bear, I guess. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of daddies. Scott's relationship with Cable doesn't get enough highlighting for my interest. I'm really happy that there's finally a teen Cable who can genuinely be raised by his parents. Because that whole, no, they raised him as slim and red. Fuck that. No, they didn't. That was a weird future timeline. No one cares. But here, they get to be his parents. And I love that. Family dynamics stoke the embers of my weird little heart. And especially found family. So I love Rachel being there. I love, uh, fine, I love Vulcan being there, I guess. He seems so weird, though. He seems like a dead robot. It's it's really awkward. And I'll be honest, I I found the whole Rachel sequence a little static as well. Yeah, you know what? That's partially Hickman's dialogue, I feel, sometimes. Hickman just, like, has this trouble making people sound like humans. (laughs) I mean, down to the kind of, like, and it's funny because I don't think I'd really thought about it until I reread House and Powers for, like, the 80th time for this, but... I honestly kind of rolled my eyes rereading the first issue of House and seeing that there's an Art of War reference. Like, people just drop in Sun Tzu quotes out of nowhere in the middle of their day. Like, it was so plebeian. You don't? (laughs) No, no, I don't. Speaking of dead people and people coming back from the dead, uh, humans can resurrect people with a crystal? Jonah, you're the engineer. How do people resurrect people with crystals? Um, (laughs) well, you take a crystal, you put it in a machine, and you go, machine, work for me, bring back this person, and the machine goes, no! And then you have to go, well, okay, and then you walk away, and the machine's like, you know, it like rubs its wires together, and then it makes a human. (laughs) Oh my god. This is so educational. Is that Nico fanfic? (laughs) We've seen that they've already developed post-humans. What if Dr. Gregor isn't actually just planning resurrection of her husband, but recreation of him as a post-human? I don't want it. I don't want post-human zombie men. Now! But that seems like something Hickman would go for. Yeah, and I don't not want it in a story way. Like, I don't want it. Like, don't bring people back from the dead. But, like, 
in terms of a story direction, yeah, you know, we're thinking about it in terms of resurrection in a linear way, kind of like the way the X-Men talk about it. Oh, it's really that person coming back psychically. But I don't think Dr. Gregor or this newly introduced Dr. Devo, who, look, I feel like Dr. Devo was designed explicitly for Lionel Francis Yu to cross-hatch the shit out of. Well, speaking of the, like, evolved humans and what they might bring her husband back as, to rewind to the very beginning of the X-Men issue, and they were rescuing the mutants from all of Orcus, one of them wasn't a mutant. It was actually, and I don't think Jonah knows who these characters are yet, but a character from the group called the Children of the Vault. And Which we the- screamed for, like, five minutes at the top of our lungs last episode about yeah specifically the character named seraphina is the one the children of the vault are like completely they're human but they're human beings that are evolved like six thousand years so it kind of makes me think if they are trying to make people like the children of the vault the potential for that story climbing out of the pages of X-Men Legacy, which in so many ways laid a roadmap for Hickman to refer back to the legacy of the X-Men with, is so phenomenal. I am so excited at the potentiality of things like the Children of the Vault. I feel like there is always this push to create a new idea within the X-Men, whether it's the Neo, which are meant to be the next evolution of mutants, or something along the lines of the Children of the Vault, and then we always take this huge step back because the next writer wants to do their own thing. Brian Woods <laughs> changing to the sublime canon were just bizarre and it didn't really add to anything that said i love when writers create the potentiality of a new story by weaving together threads from not just what exists but what fans kind of hold in their hearts and to that i want to speak for a minute about something i felt very passionately about in marauders number one kitty pride doesn't just transform into kate an adult woman i feel kitty is actually being coded very male and in that way kate's story is that of almost like a trans journey, Kate begins with nobody really taking her seriously. They call her by a a juvenile weak name, Kitty. And through her ostracism from her own group, Mutancy, she discovers through her own journey sailing to Krakoa. And by taking on masculine traits, hard drinking, leading the ship, having bruising, not just like, I'm a weak hurt woman, like physical bruising on her face. I feel they were able to create an argument for a genderless leadership of this title and the enhancement of it through having Bobby, queer Bobby, on the team. I very much felt like they were trying to create a queer X-Men book as best they could without punching you in the head with all the queer. When you were telling me about this earlier, you didn't mention that last part to me and that actually kind of makes it better for me now. It it makes a lot more sense. Well, thank you. Jonah, as somebody who's read Kitty Pride 20 years apart, it would seem, or 30 years, what was it like picking up this book and stepping into the magical world of Kate pride a woman self-possessed leading a team of x-men it's kind of like i'm reading days of future past version of Catherine pride kate in the future this isn't kitty this is almost a completely new character to me and i'm here for it i am here for her badassness i'm here for her journey i'm here for literally everything she does anything she says i will do and yes mistress kate But speaking of mistresses, it's not just Kate who takes on a bold, amazing new perspective. Dylan, you had to be pleased as punch with this iteration of Emma. This version of Emma is... uh, 
I mean, it feels like the Emma after the Phalanx Covenant, and she was still kind of up in the air of what side she was on, but she was really wanting to represent the X-Men as good as she could without losing the traits that she had prior. And I don't know, to me, this feels like that. It's Emma who is doing good, but is going to be doing things her own way, whether in this case, whether the council likes it or not, even though Storm is part of the council and is a part of it. That's actually my favorite line in the entire issue when Kate says, you made this pitch to Storm and Emma's like yeah she stopped me like two seconds in that's one of my favorite lines <laughs> in the entire book I completely agree with Dylan that this is this is okay I, I have to okay I, I'm just so flabbergasted <laughs> I'm just so excited. There's so much I have to say about this. It's that I, I think Dylan really just hit the nail on the head. It's every time I read Emma, and it's I'm coming to realize that in her earlier appearances in Uncanny, it feels like Emma is trying to find a place where she can succeed and fit in. You know, it's one point it was the Hellfire Club to get to a place where she wants to be. Then the next time I've seen her, at least in the future, is her teaching at Xavier's Institute once Genosha was destroyed. And now we see her leading the Hellfire Club again, but in a completely different way in doing what she wants to do. I think Emma works best when she can do good and, you know, because I believe Emma is a good person, but Emma's more chaotic good in that she doesn't really care for laws and she's going to do what she wants to do and she's going to service herself first. And I think that's where Emma fits best and I'm really happy to see Hickman put her in that role. There is nothing wrong with a woman finishing first. I agree completely that she's doing this to help herself but at the same time, she knows that there is the new goal of these marauders to sneak into these countries and rescue the mutants that are tra trapped there. It's something that the X-Men just can't. And I'm glad you brought up one of the elements that was a surprise to me in this book. I had no idea that Kate was going to be like Krakoan portal proof and that she says can't get to Krakoa, we'll get to you. There's something really amazing about Kate Pride going out into the world, saving mutants who didn't know they needed to be saved. It's very a full circle on how she came to be a member of the X-Men. I have one really eh. thing, and I feel really bad saying it, because like I think the interiors on Marauders by Matteo Loli are really lovely. I wish it looked like the standard cover inside. I love that standard cover so much, and I'd really hope that the interior would be like that. And it might be that I love Lionel Francis Yu and his uh, cross-hatching to death, but I feel like this book would benefit from a slightly heavier tone in the art, though I wonder if my favorite moment, which was Kate being like, uh, I want to fight some aggro humans. Bobby, let's go fight some humans. <laughs> like that drunk Kate screaming in a tree was one of my favorite things ever. I need and, drunk uh, Kate in every issue. We really do. Yeah, we need drunk pirate Kate all the time. Yeah. Is Wolverine going to be upset you're using his stash? I am his stash. Yeah, she's like the <laughs> Oh import. my god. Like, she's the smuggler now. So I very much love all of the radical changes to Kate to the X-Men. You know, I think I'm going to take a step back and say that if somebody got a weird short shake in all of this, I think it might have been Storm, who appears a lot in both titles, but not in a way that leads her character anywhere. I guess I hadn't realized that the only people who got a whole lot of redefinition were the people who needed major turnarounds. I hadn't considered it that way. Did anybody feel any other characters got majorly shortchanged that needed a highlight here? Like, I needed Xavier, Moira, and Magneto to take a break, so I wasn't disappointed with the lack of their perspective. 
But in thinking about it, yeah, Storm didn't get a fair shake. Jean kind of got shortchanged. Monet didn't show up too much anywhere. I feel like when you like think about X-Men and then going straight into Marauders, well, like you said, I don't think Storm actually needs any kind of shakeup because she's perfect. But I feel like reading X-Men and then going into Marauders, like Scott mentioned and even Storm mentioned a few times that it seems like they've been going pretty hard for a few weeks now and Storm ne- just needed a break. So I feel like... Reading X-Men, going into Marauders, Storm is like, I'm going to go on a vacation with Kate and I'm going to make sure she does everything by the book type of thing. Jonah, did you feel like anybody didn't get as much attention as you needed? You know, I really wish I got to see more of the modern day magic Ileana and Kate friendship because Kate does mention her that if anything, she could just portal her around. But I would have loved to see what that friendship looks like still today. Magic is also one of the generals, if I'm not mistaken. So I feel like she should be showing up. I agree. I feel like there would be something missing if Kate doesn't have a chance to hang with Ray or Ileana. Kyle, when you turned through the pages of the first two titles of the Dawn of X, were you like, no, give me this mutant. Why is this mutant not here? This mutant. Mutant, mutant, this. Mutant. <laughs> um, honestly, I feel like Nightcrawler would have been the perfect addition. He loves the whole swashbuckling theme. I don't understand why he's not here and why he's in Excalibur instead. I mean, he was the only character to appear in all 125 issues of the original series of Excalibur, and I think maybe they just want the name recognition, but that's not enough to justify limiting a character like that. I really, really agree with you. Down to the fact that Kitty even steals a sword. Like, that's so Nightcrawler. I really hadn't considered that he would have been a better fit for this type. His connection with Kate, it, it just, they're like really, really good friends. So I don't understand how they missed this opportunity. I wait, ready? All of Kate's best friends, Ileana, can teleport. Oh. Nightcrawler can teleport. Oh. Ray can lightning speed fly people around the globe. Brian can do the same if Brian's even alive, but God knows where Brian is. If Megan were around, Megan could do the same. So many of the people in Kate world are so overpowered they i guess had to limit her friendships wow, or limit about... her being able to get to the island yeah i mean we're talking about a book with iceman and storm as regulars and we're saying we had to limit the powerhouses <laughs> <laughs> We have two Omegas here. I think you're making a really good point in that they might have saw a theme with Kate's best friends. And I think if Kate's journey and part of the story is going to be why she's barred from going on Krakoa, I think she needs for her journey she can't rely on someone transporting her for her i think that she has to be the one doing the traveling and i think if we're putting this all in terms of a larger gender conversation then yes having someone else travel her would be disingenuous to her personal journey Guys, as always, it has been an achievement in my week getting to talk about these comics with you. I have loved every page of this experience. Jonah, now that you've read two issues of The Dawn of X, what is your major takeaway from this opening salvo before we sink our teeth into Excalibur, X-Force, and the teen books? Before I do answer that, there's something I am very excited for. I don't know about you guys. I love Betsy's costume. It is the campiest 
most amazing thing I have ever seen. And if any of our listeners out there are cosplayers, if you do cosplay that costume, please tag me in it because I would love to see it and support you in that. Oh my god. Anyway, not everything is pleasant in Krakowaville. There seems to be a lot of surface. Things are great. We're an island nation and we're going to be safe and no one's going to harm us. But like, there seems to be a lot of underlying issues that are trying to unravel the strings holding Krakoa and the Krakoa nation together. I think Hickman is doing a weird, and I'm using this word specifically, weird job of planting, quote unquote, his Krakoan seeds. There are a lot of different issues that it's not the picture perfect world and as easy as Charles was making it out to be. And I'm highly fascinated to see what other issues are going to arise. Kyle, one of the things in our friendship that we came to realize was our shared love of X-Men, and this has been such an amazing adventure to go on with you. What has you the most eager? I gotta say, I'm really curious to see where some of these teams go, specifically Fallen Angels, because those are supposed to be the mutants that don't feel like they belong. I love that. I'm really excited for this Fallen Angels book, other than the fact that no one should have ever used that title ever again, and it should have never been brought up ever again. I agree. Ever. <laughs> you should have never Completely brought agree. that up, but I am really really excited to see this sort of the alternate versions of everybody title. It's the Quanon version of Psylocke. It's the actual Asian woman who has finally been given her own character and a chance Which is to amazing. As, as a beautiful, brilliant, well-defined character representing Asian culture and heritage, trying to repair some problematic moves in the 90s and 80s. I think that's incredible. It's my precious teen Cable who, if they don't make bisexual, a stunning revelation that is X-23 at all times. Oh man, I am more excited about Fallen Angels than I was before. <laughs> Well, if I can add to that, I'm super excited about it too. But the reason I am is because I think I can't remember what issue number it's supposed to be, but they released like the cover of issue like three or four and it has Hosk and Bling in it. So that just makes me incredibly excited for the book. <laughs> I don't want to explain, but I definitely just swiped the wrong way on Scruff. Okay. So Kyle, if you just want to tell everybody where it is, I'm going to edit it together. Well, you can find me uh, continuing to work on preparing for our uh, new Thor feed, as well as on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Dylan, how about you? Everybody can find me wanting to take a nap on Kate's boat alongside Pyro, or you could find me on the internet at my Facebook group that is called House of X. It's for everything X-Men related, or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you? Uh, demanding Bobby get in my boat so we can go beat up humans. <laughs> or you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at... Nope. Or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino <laughs> and at Jonah.Rubino. Is Pyro Australian or British? Nico, where can everybody find you? He's Australian. <laughs> he's Australian and he died from mutant AIDS in the 90s. So the fact that he's back and he's making fireballs with Kitty's dragon, there's some sort of dragon fire. gays love meth metaphor there. I don't know. But you guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like Now and Again, which I do with my childhood best friend Chris Podcasts, or HTML, which I do with the amazing husband of mine, Kevo, where we talk about movie franchises. We've covered the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Fox Marvelverse, as well as the Alienverse, and now we are turning a keen eye to Star Wars, so keep a lookout for that. You can find me on the other feeds of this amazing show, as well as appearing at cons in the next few months, such as Nerdtino in Philly in November, or Farpoint in February, where we'll be debuting some amazing new prints at our table. So you definitely 
want to check that out. Don't forget to look me up on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until we take another glower back to Krakoa, we'll see ya. See ya. Bye. Bye. Yay. Don't-